We'll turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to come back to a portion of text here um, that we began or we dealt with in its larger context last week. Uh, and we want to deal with specifically these few verses this morning. Uh, I felt like they deserve their own time and attention uh, for us to rightly understand. And so 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's coming to the end of this argument all about uh, his foolishness and his weakness and trying to help them to understand the weakness in our own lives and our own brokenness. But he, he comes to this moment that uh, has just had a lot of ink spilled on it for a number of years about this concept of a thorn in the flesh. And there's all these questions about what is it and how does it work. And really to get the, the fuller understanding, you've got to deal from the visions that start in chapter verse 2 and all the way down to these, this thorn in the flesh in verse 10. And so I want to start this morning by reading the text, and then we'll, uh, by God's grace, start unpacking it today and, and see what God has for us. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, last part of his example of the fool's speech. He says this beginning in verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I want to start this morning with just a little bit of predictive work. I want to ask you to make a prediction, and uh, we'll come back to this at the end of the sermon. And uh, right here at the start, it may seem a little unrelated, and yet just trust me, go with me. Here's your two options. You get two options this morning. I want you to predict which one you would want, which one you would choose. Option number one. Option number one is after church today, uh, you can go out with a group of friends, a group of folks here from the church, your own friends, and you guys can all go to McDonald's and hang out. Hang out as long as you want. I don't care. Eat what you want at McDonald's. Have fun, right? That's option number one. Go hang out with some friends at McDonald's. Option two is you can go alone and go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and eat whatever you want to eat at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Now, um, you just... I, you know, it'd be all expenses paid. That, that's how you know that this is hypothetical because I'm, I'm not paying for you to go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. But just imagine with me, right, like suspend belief for a moment. So you get to go to Ruth's Chris, and you get to go there, but you and you can eat whatever you want to eat, but you just have to be alone. Now, some of you don't even understand that because you don't know the heavenly delight of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and I, I understand that. Um, the difference between a McDonald's cheeseburger, just so you're aware, a McDonald's cheeseburger and a Roos Chris steak is like the difference between Zesto's and frozen fried chicken from Walmart. Or um, some still like I'm not a foodie, I don't get it. Okay, so ladies, 
It would be like the difference between a three-carat diamond engagement ring and one of those 50-cent plastic things that you can get out of the little machine inside the grocery store. Uh, in other words, there's no question, Roost Chris Running Away is going to be better food. So, so you can go there alone and enjoy maybe the best steak ever. Now, now this is an incredibly unfair one for any moms of young children because alone time, al- that enough is a gift, right? So um, just no screaming children, babysitting free. What? Are you kidding me? Uh, but there's your options. Option one, McDonald's with friends. Option two, Roost Chris Steakhouse alone. So choose, pick. Um, if you take notes, write it down, mark it down because some people like to cheat and at the end of the sermon you'll reverse your decision just to be in line with whatever the preacher's saying anyway. So... And I will tie this in. But last week, last week we looked at the full speech in large scale, right? We, we almost an airplane, or two weeks ago, almost an airplane level view. Uh, Paul uh, gives these different examples of the Greek fools. I gave you three of them. There's actually like five in the text, uh, but they overlap. And, and so just trying to help us understand, as Paul's making this argument about why he would boast in his weaknesses, he ends with this particular kind of Greek fool, the, the old wise fool, someone who would claim knowledge, but really in a play, in a Greek play, it would be revealed to be a farce. The guy really doesn't even know what he's talking about. And, and Paul is saying, though, that I've had these revelations, but now I have this thorn. And the, the, I think it's worth our time this morning to examine this specifically, this truth from this part of this passage. The fact that the blessings of God inspire us to serve while the thorns of God, from God keep us usable for that service. Paul's whole point, and we've, we've seen the crescendo from biblical theology, from God using weak things, whether it's Abraham and Sarah, who in their old age in a dead womb, is how it's described, his life even from a graveyard, is how it's described, all the way to Jesus born in a manger, David, uh, a boy defeating a giant, Israel, the smallest of the nations, uh, does any good thing come from Nazareth, All these weak ways that God loves to demonstrate his strength and this crescendo biblical truth comes to a point in Corinthians when Paul begins to tell them God chooses the weak to confound the strong, the the foolish to confound the wise, the ignoble to confound the noble. And so God loves to show his power through our weaknesses and it crescendos in this massive moment of this full speech. But this last portion really reveals the journey of Paul's own heart to come to that understanding. This is the difference between being able to say that intellectually, uh, telling your neighbor God uses the weak things to confound uh, the strong of this world, and living in that reality. It's the difference between being told Ruth Chris has a good steak and having tasted the steak. One One is experiential, Uh, The other one is simply intellectual. This is the passage that reveals to us Paul's sanctification in this. How did Paul come to understand this truth and this reality? And and really, it's this phrase that he has learned that the blessings of God may inspire him to serve, may draw him into service, entice him into service, uh, empower him in some ways even to want to serve, but it's the thorns from God that keep him usable to serve. Uh, you can have all the gifting, all the strength, all the power, might in the world, but still be unusable. And so Paul is helping us to understand this journey. Now, there's a couple things about this text that are uh, really critical for us to understand. They're same but different. There's commonalities. And the first half of this passage uh, is going to be all about the blessing. The second half is all about the thorn. 
Well, the first thing that they have in common, both of them, is that they're vague, and they are intentionally vague. The blessings are vague when he talks about them. Uh, let me just refresh you. He says, uh, he goes on to visions and revelations, and he, and he uses this kind of outside-of-himself person to talk about it. We know it's him because later he goes, and he says, my own revelations. But, but he, he talks about, I know a man 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. What is he talking about? He, he intentionally is vague whether the guy's in the body or out of the body. He doesn't know. Um, he doesn't know this man was caught up into paradise. Again, whether he's in the body or out of the body. What is Paul talking about here? Well, if you study the book of Acts and even in the Galatians, there are seven different recorded encounters Paul has of either a vision, revelation, or a direct encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, the one you're most familiar with is on the road to Damascus where Paul, as a lost man, suddenly has a vision from heaven. He's blinded physically so that he might see spiritually, right? Uh, that's the one we're most familiar with. But you might even remember, as we've been studying through Corinthians, there came a point where Paul was ready to run away from Corinth. And God gave him a vision at that point and said, no, stay, I'm not going to let you die. Seven different recorded revelations or visions for Paul. We have no idea which one of this, those this is that he's referencing, or if it's another one completely different. He gives us trace information about it, very little information about it. He uses this kind of unusual phrase, caught up into the third heaven. We know enough about the Jews and their perspective from the Old Testament that they viewed the earthly, kind of earthly atmosphere, and then you would have space, as we would think of it, and then they thought of God as being in the third heaven, first, second, third. There's really not a lot of definition there. He doesn't describe to us what the dwelling place of God is like. And in fact, he tells us, I can't tell you what I was even told there. I'm just telling you this happened. And it's astoundingly and, and even shockingly vague. Um, we don't know if this is when Paul was in Arabia preaching for three years that he tells them in Galatians 1 where he's taught by Christ. We know he has specific other instructions from Christ because he tells the Corinthians when he corrects them about how to celebrate the Lord's table and do communion, he says, as Jesus told me. Well, he wasn't there at the Last Supper. And so when did that happen? And so Paul's just being shockingly and astoundingly vague about what in the world he's talking about. Well, he does the same thing with the thorn. When we come to the thorn, he says that there's this thorn in the flesh that God has given him. He, he gives us some indications here he says that it was a thorn given me in the flesh verse 7 a messenger of satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me but god tells him his grace is sufficient for him so much ink has been spilled over what is the thorn uh, is this physical is this uh, relational is it even mental um, different guys make different arguments on the side of the physical that this is some kind of physical malady, whether it is eyesight or uh, fatigue or even mental, we think mentally physical anxiety. Paul has already said that his, the anxiety of the churches weigh on him. And so some have taken that to say that uh, Paul is continually struggling with anxiousness and worry and all the things that would come with that physically, loss of sleep, loss of appetite. Um, that, that it's maybe just physical with his eyes. We know he had some struggle with his eyes. Paul communicated earlier in Corinthians. He knows he doesn't speak so well. And the language that he uses there could even have indicated some kind of, of deformity or uh, hindrance in his speaking, whether it would be stuttering or slurring his speech, something going on there. Some have even surmised that maybe he had a, he'd had a stroke 
and so his speech is now slurred as a result of this. Uh, there, the, the thorn, when it's described, is actually more like a pointed stick. It's unfortunate that for us in our English that it's translated as thorn. Uh, it's much closer to a goad, a long, short, sharp stick, a spear-like, somebody jabbing you with it. So it's not just an irritant, but it's something really painful that's afflicting you. He tells the Galatians, he, he almost apologizes for his ministry to them, the hindrance because of physical maladies that he had. And so when people take all of that, they say clearly then uh, it must be physical. Uh, on the other side, though, uh, he says it's a messenger from Satan. Now, some would look back at the book of Job, and, and you might remember, I announced a few weeks ago, we're going to start studying Job here uh, in February. We'll finish Corinthians, we'll start in Job. And so you might remember that Satan afflicts Job uh, under God's sovereignty, and, and, and it's physical, but it's also relational. Uh, it's death around him. Uh, three times in the Old Testament, this phrase is used, this thorn in the flesh. All three times, exclusively in the Old Testament, it references people problems. People are thorn to you. Um, the fact that it's called a messenger, the fact that the Old Testament uses this same phrase, and, and so some of you are like, well, the Old Testament is Hebrew, the Greek translation, Septuagint, this is the phrase that it uses, that it's this kind of relational affliction. We know that Paul had people that uh, contradicted him in Galatia and here in Corinthians. We know that he had to fight the Judaizers at every city and at every turn. So some have surmised then this is a person in Paul's life, a person or a group of people that are a constant, wearying, incredibly painful group of people to deal with. And but then they say, well, what would he mean when he prayed for it to be taken away? <laughs> uh, what does that mean? And so we have all this. So what is it? Is it physical? Is it relational? I think Paul's being intentionally vague. He's not telling us. It really could be either. This is one of those that um, if you press me super hard, I'll tell you I, I land, I think it was relational. But I really think that Paul's being vague about what it is. And intentionally so. Why be vague then? Why would you ever be vague? And the reality is Paul's vagueness here gives a broadness to the application. On both sides. And so as we think through the passage, it gives us a freedom to really be asking about blessings in our lives that are not the same as a revelation, obviously, or a vision. Uh, we don't have those. Uh, thorns, though, struggles. It gives us a freedom to begin uh, applying those to our own heart. If you're not vague about this, the danger is that some people would say, well, I don't have that kind of physical affliction. It's physical, I don't have that, so I can't really understand. Or if it's relational, I've never had that, but, but here I have this physical problem, and think like this doesn't apply to me. I've never had a vision, a dream, a revelation. I haven't been caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, so this doesn't apply to me. The vagueness here gives a broadness to the application. It helps us to understand that this is a dynamic of life whether it's blessings or thorns, particularly in understanding biblical theology, this crescendo of this truth, God using the weak things to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise, then we can lean into how Paul has learned this lesson and begin asking questions about applying it in our own lives. Secondarily, secondarily, it's, they're common, whether it's the thorn or the blessing, and their lifelong spiritual impact, how they hit us and, and how it sticks with us. With the blessing, there is this opportunity for pride. 
That's specifically what happens. Uh, God gives Paul this vision of this particular revelation. He keys in on this one out of the midst of mo- many that he had, at least seven uh, or more. And, and he keys on this one, this visit to heaven, vision, revelation, whatever this was producing or had the potential to produce in him spiritual pride. And in a response to that pride, the thorn came so that Paul might experience Christ-like humility. And so there's a persistent nature to these things. So when we start talking about blessings or thorns in our lives, there's a persistence to them. There's a way that they linger with you. They last. Uh, we, they're both open-ended. We have a revelation with no revealing, and we have uh, a thorn with no healing. Uh, Paul is communicating, and this is really important, the lifelong impact of both of these things. I don't know how often you reflect on this, but there are things that God is bringing and doing into your life and in mine that he intends to change you for the rest of your life. He intends for it to stick with you, for it to stay with you. Uh, One of the the biggest fears, I think, as you spend time in Christ, as you mature in Christ, is you go through, in particular, trials, for example, and your heart is particularly drawn to the Lord. You don't have any problem uh, being in the Word and worshiping and praying. Man, uh, this trial is hit and you're on your knees all the time. I think of when my uh, youngest brother was born, and he, he celebrated his birthday just this past week, but when he was born, uh, he was in the NICU, and the doctors gave us no hope. Uh, he, we, he was born in Maryland, and the head of the neonatal intensive care unit where he was born was the former head of the neonatal intensive care unit for Johns Hopkins University. He was literally the best doctor in the world. He met with my parents, and he said, I just, it, there's nothing I can do if you're praying people pray but there's no hope. Really wasn't hard to pray. Heart was drawn to it. Uh, At every moment, uh, Paul's uh, direction to us to pray without ceasing was easy to do, right? And God healed my little brother. Uh, He actually and his wife are actually expecting their second now. But if you've been in Christ any length of time and you've gone through that, you, and, you know as well as I do that the day he comes home, guess what happened to the prayers? Eh. And that's the reality of life, isn't it? The Lord can use trials to draw you in close to him, but there's a part of you that you know as the trial goes away, my heart tends to drift. David said this. this, is, this is, look, don't beat yourself up. We want to grow and change it through, out of that, let's be honest. But David himself said... Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And so Paul is saying through his reflection on this, through his understanding of this, these have lifelong... Do you want the thorns and blessings of your life to have lifelong impact? I do. I don't want the fade. I I want the unique work of God to be present. And so Paul is telling us something that's actually very similar to the story of Jacob. You remember when he's... uh, going to go see his brother Esau, he's terrified, and he wrestles with God all night. And God hits his hip and puts it out of joint. And so he walks with a limp, a painful limp, the rest of his life because of being blessed by God. Isn't that that amazing? Blessing. (laughs) And really what I walk away with is an awareness of my own infirmity, my own weakness. This Paul is telling us spiritually something that's like lived out through the story of Jacob. And so there's a lifelong spiritual impact Both of them are having deep influence in our lives. So this is what Paul is saying. 
Look at what they do. And so take your life, and we're going to pour your life and my life through a filter. Look at what this does. Because I want to live in the reality that while God certainly can work through uh, gifting and strengths, ambition, desire, uh, intellect, wisdom, uh, education, that God delights in showing his wisdom through my foolishness, his strength through my weakness, his nobility through my ignobility of life. And I want to live in that reality. And so how can I do that? Well, the blessings of God inspire us to serve while the thorns from God keep us usable for service. So let's, let's do the first one. Let's talk about spiritual pride. Uh, there's a little bit of an origin story here for Paul, right? The origin story of Paul's spiritual pride was visions and revelations. My question is, at this moment, is to ask you to consider what might be the origin story of your spiritual pride. My, my, my family is an MCU uh, fans. We love the Marvel Universe, and, and, and so one of the things, I never read a lot of comic books growing up, um, but, but I just, I think it's cool, and um, it's a liberty issue, right? So, so use your own discernment, and, but, but I'm watching these movies, and they love to tell origin stories of these guys, and where did this, where did this hero come from, and where did this villain come from, and lots of times villains are made sympathetic by an origin story. Look at how much they've suffered. That's why they are who they are. Look at this hero. They're, they're an anti-hero. That's, so what's the origin story? Well, Paul is struggling with spiritual pride. God looks at him, doesn't want that to be, knows that's the case, knows that's going to be a temptation, so he's going to react to it. Well, where did the spiritual pride came, come from? It came from the visions and revelation. Here's my question. Where does your and my spiritual pride come from? What's the origin story? And if we think with Paul's vagueness, when we think about the dynamics of spiritual pride, it could be a whole host of things in your life or my life. Uh, maybe it... It's the result of training or theological knowledge. Um, maybe you grew up your whole life in church, so you know all the Bible stories. You, you saw all the flannel graphs in children's church. and um, Maybe you acted in the Christmas play and the pageants, and you sang in the choir or whatever, but your whole life has been churched, and so you know it. And there's a part of you, when you interact with somebody that doesn't know the stories or know what's going on, there's a part of you a little bit, like just to be honest, you're a little bit proud about it. There, there's, sometimes, there's sometimes you're confused and you think spiritual knowledge is the same thing as spiritual maturity, and they're not. But just because you know doesn't mean you do, right? But it, that can be a source of it. I, um, I've talked to people before in the in, had difficult conversations with folks, and I've had them look at me and say, I've heard th these things. Um, I've spent my whole life in church. And I'm always like, I don't know what they mean by that. Pastorally, you don't get to say, those are moments you don't get to say what you want to say, right? What you want to say is, so? But you can't say that, right? Maybe it's, it's having attended a Bible college or seminary. Maybe it's generational that you tend to think that that makes you better. Maybe it's a set of rules you've followed that make you think you're holier. Well, I don't listen to this. I don't watch that. I don't go here. I don't do that. I don't dress this way. I don't do these things. I don't use this liberty. I don't use that liberty. I, I, I don't even think they're liberty. Here's the rules, and, and so I'm holier than them. I'm somehow better than them. I've arrived there at this theological truth. 
It could be some, some uh, gift. The Corinthians were tr- struggling with spiritual gifts and thinking that made them better. Uh, and they highlighted tongues and speaking in tongues and prophecy. But maybe you have a particular spiritual gift and you tend to think, uh, you would never say this, right, because you're at least mature enough to know that it would make you sound proud, but you tend to think your gifts are better than other people's gifts. Right? I'm so glad I have the gift of teaching whereby I can clearly understand and expound the Word of God unlike other believers. I'm so glad I have the gift of mercy where I can enter into and love and affection for the hurting like Jesus did. Uh, Good Samaritan is my favorite. So I'm so glad I have the gift of serving. And so I'm never one that just watches other people work. I get in and get my hands dirty. And Jesus said, if you want to lead, then you've got to wash feet. I love washing feet. I, lo- I don't know who says that. but <laughs> um, The Corinthians thought that. The Corinthians thought one spiritual gift made them better. And so, I mean, and even when you realize it's a gift, why would God give you that gift? Clearly, He saw something in you. You know, it's like, it's like we're thinking like in eternity past, the Trinity, God is having this internal conversation within the Trinity, and you know what we're really going to need? We're really going to need a Steve. Okay, let's go ahead and save him. We got to have him for the kingdom advance. So, like, just pop the bubble. God's never like worried about advancing His kingdom if you don't get on board. He's got a mission and plan. He's working much more in spite of us than because of us. But spiritual pride can come in when we begin to think somehow we're needed. We're not. It could be some experience. Paul's is an experience. Uh, it resulted in knowledge and information, but it was an experience that he had had. And so maybe it's an experience. Maybe, uh, like I said, attending a Bible college or seminary, receiving training. Maybe it's an experience of having served in a ministry capacity uh, as, as a missionary or a missions trip uh, working at a camp. Maybe it's an, a ministry experience of Sunday school. Uh, it could be having been used by God in discipleship in a unique way or through counseling others in a u- unique way and seeing God move. It could be that you've had a long, healthy marriage. It could be that your children all seem to turn out well and know and love Jesus and seem to be successful. It could be that you overcame a difficult trial or a hindrance. Uh, you learned to walk or lead with a limp, uh, as one guy wrote as the title of a book. It could be a significant answer to prayer, and we all know that God loves to answer the prayers of a righteous man, the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man. Listen, it could be anything, anything that has been a way that God has worked in your life that has deepened your awe of Him and developed affection for Him. That's where the door is at for spiritual pride. Any moment where it has happened, experience, journey, life, and your awe of Him has just exploded. You've seen Him do an amazing thing. And your affection for Him has drawn it. These are good things. These are not bad things. My father, who uh, had arthritis in his hands so bad at one point, He was thinking about having to go on lifelong disability, wouldn't be able to work. He's a master electrician, works for General Motors. You can't use your hands, you can't work. He he couldn't carry in groceries, he couldn't hold the hand of my little brother at the time he was a toddler, because when he squeezed his finger, it would literally bring my dad to to his knees in pain. We prayed fervently, my dad followed the commendation of James and asked for the elders of the church to pray for him. They did, and my father was healed healed 
God sometimes works through doctors of medicine. Praise the Lord. There's other times God just heals people. He healed my father. My father worked from that day, for, and he was in his early 30s, until he was in his early or late 60s. Never had it again. You know, you know what that does to the heart of a child, seeing God do that? My awe of God and my affection for God exploded. What has God, what blessings has he brought into your life? What kindnesses of God have happened toward you as his child that has deepened your awe of him and increased your affection for him? Well, with that comes the threat of spiritual pride. It just does. It shows up with it. What then is spiritual pride? How might we better understand it? Uh, well, pride in general is an overconfidence in yourself. <laughs> spiritual pride leads us to look down on others in a spiritual context. You know, the, the Pharisees, the greatest demonstration of this, is just one section that just ex- <laughs> so exposes their heart. In Luke 18, he says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Spiritual pride hinders love for others, even while it looks down on others. Spiritual pride will tend to manifest itself in being irritated with the immaturity of others. If they had only had the training or the experiences or seen God work the way I would, then they would not be the way they are. It's not affection, it's irritation and annoyance. Spiritual pride tends to withhold grace and forgiveness because it sees other people, frankly, as being worse than we are. Do you struggle? Do you have a hard time showering grace and forgiveness on other people? You ever, do you, are, do you ever, are you ever one of those people that, you know, somebody asks forgiveness and you want to forgive them, but in your mind, in your heart, this is what you're thinking? You better never do it again. Because the reality is you've only sinned against Jesus once and you've never done it again. So you're fully righteous in making that demand, right? Er, wrong. But spiritual pride will withhold that. As somehow the sin done against you is worse than the sins done by you. And they're not. Spiritual pride tends to isolate from community. Uh, your relationships will either be shallow or non-existent. Why? Because you can't be around other people because one of two things happens. Either you judge them harshly or you're always afraid they're judging you harshly. And so you can't spend time with people. You get annoyed with people easily. And frankly, if we're really honest about it, we're really hard to be around when we're spiritually proud. We might think things about others and say, you know what, they need the same experience I had. You know what they really need to do? They really need to go on a missions trip to Guatemala. That would be the cure. Uh, Just because God used a missions trip in Guatemala in my life to help open my eyes 
to the reality of third world country living for a believer, that's what they need. That's the cure-all. If they had that, that would grow them up. That would, that's what God would use to make them grateful for the kind gifts that He has given to them. This is spiritual pride. There are people, there was a season in my life right after seminary, uh, my wife and I went and worked at a camp for a number of years, and it was a unique experience. It was a parachurch organization, uh, and so we've got kids coming in 10 weeks every summer, uh, and, and kids from broken places, difficult situations. We had family camp, teen camp, junior camp, and so there were several of us, man, we were just, you're giving your life to it. It was not uncommon to be working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. You're just exhausted, and you're spiritually exhausted, and these kids are getting off buses, and, and I'd watch them get off the bus on Monday, knowing that by Wednesday or Thursday that week, I'd be in some office counseling some kid who suffered horrific abuse or terrible circumstances, and then have to put them back on the bus on Saturday, and you just know you don't have the reserves. You don't have the wisdom for them. You don't have the strength for their situation. You can't cure their pain. You can't fix their trial, and so you know what you do? You get on a gator, this dumb little John Deere thing. You take your best friend and you drive the top of a hill and you both are on your knees weeping, crying to God to do something because you've got nothing. And then you'd see him move and work. And my heart is just melted to see the power of God on the move in people's lives and do that week after week after week. And so there are people that I, the best way I could describe it to you is we went to war with spiritually. And that changes you to, to steal from Stephen Ambrose's phrase. They created a band of brothers. And there are men and there are ladies that I went through that experience of my life with that I can frankly not see or speak to for years, see them at an Arby's, and immediately pick up where we left off. Because we went through the war together. And we saw God move. And God used that season in a profound way in my life. And you know what the temptation of my heart is? The temptation of my heart is to say, every believer needs to experience that. And if you don't, here's the spiritual pride, if you don't, then you can't really be as much like Jesus. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that terrible? It's terrible. That's spiritual pride. Blessing from God to expand my awe of Him and deepen my affection for Him suddenly becomes a point to look down on others, to think somehow it makes me better. Where are the blessings in your life? The kind gifts of God in your life where spiritual pride can creep in. I think there's just so many. It could be the fact that you're married or not. It could be the fact that you're successful or not. It could be any number of things. But then the flip side, the split flip side are the thorns. And so Paul makes it very clear here, um, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And so we can think then about the pain. First of all, let's just think about it's the thorn's pain and the work that it does. Whether it's physical or relational, Paul makes this very clear. It hurts. And it hurts bad. It hurts 
It hurts bad, and on top of that, God won't take it away. That in and of itself is a terrifying reality. You see, because as a child of God, inside of every one of us is this little child that believes that a good parent doesn't hurt their child. And here God the Father is bringing a thorn into his life and frankly into our lives that inflicts a deep sense of hurt. And that just doesn't seem fair or right. Even though we know in reality that every good parent will punish and discipline their child, Hebrews 12. And God is no exception. And as a good and loving father, he will discipline us and he will even chasten us when we sin. Never more than what's necessary and always out of love. We do not suffer thorns as children of God because of his wrath. Romans 5 tells us Jesus has taken all the wrath of God. And so the thorn in Paul's life and the thorn or thorns in your life or mine are not intended as wrath-filled punishment, but as sharp, goading pains. It hurts. It is not wrong or a lack of faith to acknowledge the painful thorns of our lives that are happening under the sovereignty of God. You do not help God's cause by claiming nothing hurts. You are not more spiritually mature because you slap a fake smile on a hurting heart. It hurts. I believe great disservice is done, particularly by anyone in a leadership position, when they act like life doesn't stink sometimes or it doesn't hurt. Because what it miscommunicates is that somehow you can arrive at some level of spiritual maturity where even the thorns of life don't sting anymore, and it's not true. Paul makes it very, very clear. The language that he's using, that this is a painful, sharp, spear-like poking in his side. In fact, Jesus knows our sufferings. He knows our weaknesses, and he deals gently with us even if there are things he won't fix while he's here. Thorns hurt. Now, I think it's important to recognize, in the midst of Paul's vagueness about the nature of his thorn, that thorns tend to be person-specific and maturity-specific. What do I mean by that? Something that might be a thorn to me, and a painful experience for me, you might have a similar experience and it not hit, hurt you the same way. It not affect you the same way. It doesn't mean I'm, you're better or, or worse than me. It's just person-specific. And I think this is actually really important because unless you understand that, you and I can tend to be cold and indifferent to the thorns of others. Right? And so when as believers we're interacting, we're doing community and life together, and we realize, man, so-and-so is really hurting over this. A wrong response is, well, if they would just grow up a bit, maybe that's true. Let me tell you something. That's neither your job nor your role. Jesus got that part of it. You know what your job and role is? Comfort, encouragement, and strength giving. 
Thorns may be people-specific, and they may be maturity-specific. Um, I think it's important also to notice the painful nature of this thorn does not, while it is in response to the spiritual pride that's happening, it does not seem to be otherwise you could connect the two. Right? It's, it's not one for one. And so thorn could be way over here that's keeping you humble where the pride origin is way over here. So you're not always going to be able to connect them. You're just going to be able to recognize this part of my life hurts a lot. And God is intending to use it secondarily. Secondarily, the thorn's hindrance. Why is Paul begging God to take it away? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Why would Paul do this? Well, we already know so much from Paul from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, from Acts and his other epistles. Paul's on mission for the glory of God. Paul's on mission for the expansion of Jesus' kingdom, not his own kingdom. He's actually made that argument. Some plant, some water, God gets the increase, right? It's my job to go out and lay the foundation. God's going to build on it. Uh, when he teaches the church in Ephesus, he says, my job and the, and the other elders, apostles' job, teach you to do the work of the ministry. And as you speak the truth and love to one another, the church is built up in maturity. This is my job. And so Paul's on mission for the kingdom. Why is Paul begging God to take away the thorn? Yes, it's because it hurts, but it's also because Paul's perception is this weakness, this pain spot in my life is preventing me, it's hindering me from being maximally effective for the kingdom. If I didn't have this, look at how much I'd be able to do for God. If I didn't have the distraction of this pain, if, I didn't have the, if it's physical, if I could physically do more. He, we know when he writes the Galatians, he felt that way about at least one physical condition. He spends page after page after page in the, in the letters to the Corinthians, plus two others we don't even have recorded for us, and the Bible is inspired, dealing with people problems. Think how much the church in Corinth could have done without these false teacher super apostles. Get them out of here. Get rid of them. The disciples were even going to think that way about lost people in the church. Tares among the wheat or goats among the sheep. And Jesus says, look, you can't be on mission to get rid of them all. You'll get it wrong. You'll kick out some sheep and welcome in some goats. You'll rip out some wheat and keep some tares. You have to trust me the last day for it. And so whether it's people, whether it's physical, Paul's heart is, I want to do more for you, God. Why? Because my awe of God has been blown apart and my affection for God has been deepened. So I want to do most for God. I want to do more for God. God, I want to love you and please you and serve you. I want to proclaim you and preach you. I want to share the gospel. I want to see people healed. I want to see people restored. I want to see people made right with you. And I can't be as effective as my heart wants to because this thorn is holding me back. Please, Jesus, take away the thorn so I can do more for you. That's his heart. What seems to hold you back? What painful part of your life? Clearly, the pain of it even is a distraction. The circumstances of it make life more difficult and ministry harder. Have you ever looked jealously on someone else who hasn't or doesn't seem to be suffering from a weakness like you? And you've thought, it, it's, not that, it's not that you wanted them to experience pain, but you wanted to experience the wholeness you perceive in them. Boy, God, if God would just have given me their gifts, 
If God would just have given me their strength, if God would just have given me their abilities, if God had just given me their resources, if God would have kept me physically, if God would have kept me spiritually, if God would have kept me emotionally, or if God had protected me relationally, look at how much more I could be doing for him. You ever run across people that give up on church because they get hurt? That's always one of those that I'm like, I hate that people get hurt within the institution of church. You want church to be a safe place. You want church to be welcoming and healing and whole and training. It's boot camp as much as it is an uh, intensive care unit. (laughs) It's as much a family dinner around Thanksgiving as it is friends, guests like fish stink after three days. And so... You get to know people, and you're like, I don't know if I want to be around them anymore. Um, And so some people get hurt, and they're done, right? I love Jesus, not the church, which is a problem because it's called his bride. Like somebody comes to me and says, I love you, Steve, but I hate your wife. We might have a problem, right? Right? But people get hurt, and I get hurt, and and, I, and you know, I'll hear people express things like, man, I just wish that there was so much I was on fire for God till I got hurt by the church. And that what they're expressing unwittingly is the effect of a thorn. And I don't minimize that. i be frank with you, I've never been hurt more than by people in the church. It's painful. And so maybe your heart has been like my heart where at times I thought, man, I just wish I could have the experience of so-and-so who's never been hurt by the church. Look how much more I could do for God. Whatever it is, look what I could do. Where are the areas you feel held back? You feel like you can't do as much because of the thorns of life. Maybe it's a stigma that's been hung on you. A sin you did or was done against you. So I don't know if we can trust them. I don't know if we can use them. I don't know if we can be with them. It can be so many things in your life, but it, it, it's painful and it hinders you. But then thirdly, thirdly, it's empowering. And that just seems so backwards, which shouldn't shock us because that's what Paul's whole theme in this issue is. God uses weak things to confound the strong and foolish things to confound the wise and ignoble things to confound the nobility, all to point to his glory because Paul came to see all of his weaknesses through this lens. Let me, let me show this to you. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is about the thorn. This is in response to the thorn, a specific thorn. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now look what Paul shoves under this umbrella. These are not all thorns, you'd say, but he sees it all in totality. He says, for the sake of Christ, that I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. God was using the thorn to teach Paul how to understand weakness. A very specific hurt that God wouldn't take away to teach him how to view all the broken areas of his life, whether they are relational or physical. Weakness, 
might be physical, insults, clearly relational, hardships more physical, no food, no clothing, deprivation, persecution, both relational and physical, calamities just seems like the, the world at large going wrong. Paul throws all of it under this umbrella, and when he talks about that he's learned to be content with them, he tells us elsewhere in his writings that God taught him contentment. Contentment isn't natural, it's learned. It's spiritual maturation to learn to be content. And Paul's learned to be content with the thorn because he understands this. It gives him humility, and it is through the humility of Christ in us that we're empowered to do the work of Jesus through us. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And so this thorn that's been painful, this thorn that seems to be hindering, is all to drive him to actually greater usability. You can draw a massive circle around all the things in your or my life that seem to make us weak. Relational rejection? Check. Physical disability or, in, or illness? Check. Ministry failure? Check. Fear, check. Anxiety, check. Lack of wisdom, check. Personality bent, check. Spiritual gifting or lack thereof, check. Season of life, check. Wearing down of life, check. Loneliness, check. Isolation, check. Not knowing what to say. Not having words to cure or to heal, check. Paul has seen all of his weaknesses through these lenses. Now, do you remember the question from the beginning of the two scenarios? You remember that? What you going with, McDonald's together or Ruth's Chris alone? Well, researchers have studied these very things. And we could have done all kinds of things, right? Uh, staycation, watching the snowfall with all your friends, or all-expense-paid trip for one on Viking Cruise Line. Anybody that watches Masterpiece knows what I'm talking about. Those are like some $5,000 cruises down the Danube. It's like amazing. Well, it's interesting. Researchers have studied this, and they have learned that an individualized experience that is amazing and is exciting absolutely increases your personal sense of satisfaction and joy. However, what they have also discovered is doing very mundane, normal things with a group of other people produces higher levels of joy and satisfaction that lasts far longer. And in fact, in fact, the joy that you experience from an isolated, amazing moment is actually diminished by feeling like you've been left out from a group. Even if they were doing something way more boring. You know what all the researchers are just understanding then? Is God has designed us to do life together, not alone. And they've actually discovered then that you want to be a happy person, joyful person, do life with other people, even mundane things with other people. Why is Paul so vague? Because every single person in this room, if you know Jesus, you've experienced blessings. And every single person in this room, you know Jesus, you know the taint of thorns. It's a shared experience. 
It really doesn't matter if you're blessing this thing that increased your awe of God and deepened your affection from him, for him was a vision or revelation or whether it was a season of life or a particular kindness of God towards you. It doesn't really matter. It's the blessings of God were intended to inspire you to serve this awe of him, the affection you have for him, your zeal now to want to tell others about him, to worship him, to please him, to serve him, to see his kingdom go forth and expand because you've tasted of his love and his affection and his kindness and his grace to you. But the problem is that can easily lead you to spiritual pride. And so the thorns are intended to make you usable. That means that this morning, I'm actually convinced of this reality. If you're here this morning, you know Jesus, you've got thorns. There are things just needling. And they're hurting. It seems like God is not taking them away. Darren and I have both told you that as our um, plan it's our mission it's our movement to move to life groups during the week beginning this next fall as we continue to identify and train host families and leaders but i want you to know what it would be like if you had life group this week this is what your application would be you'd meet together and i'd ask you to say ask this of one another what is one blessing god has brought into your life that makes you feel an awe for god or deeper affection for him. Just share within the life group and celebrate that in one another's lives. Just in the midst of sermon, I've probably mentioned a half a dozen from my own life. I think actually when you start taking time and thinking through, you will see them and experience and understand them. I think lots of times we're not grateful because we don't take time to meditate on his gifts. So imagine the power of sitting with people that you're trying to get to know better and you're trying to do life with and asking them, what is a blessing? And one of the best ways you can get to know other people is to see how God has been on the move in their life. And then ask this question, what is one thorn, one weakness revealer God has brought into your life? Mourn and appreciate these in one another's lives. It is not dichotomous. It is not schizophrenic to say this really, really hurts And God is really, really using it. That's not wrong. I think all too often people are convinced if I'm going to say God's working in it, I can't acknowledge the painfulness of it. Or I just soak in the pain of it and I can't see how God's using it. And so it's helpful to talk to others and help work through that. What is one thorn then and then lastly thirdly brainstorm how god may be at work through the thorns in each other's lives that increase usability so you can help point each other to hope and faithful confidence in god's plan for your lives it can be profoundly difficult to see the value of our own thorns at times if you were to struggle figuring out connections It'd be helpful to even communicate one thing you really appreciate about the person and see if that's not connected to a thorn. I always have to be more careful because sermons get recorded and videoed now. And so I, I love that, but I also hate the loss of privacy of these moments. Um, and so I'll pick one who cannot complain, right? 
And pretty early on, a decade or so ago, um, when I moved into what I'm doing now, I went and met with Betty. And Betty uh, is a pastor's wife widow who could not have her own children, so she adopted two of them. And her daughter went off the rails and died of a drug overdose a number of years ago. I remember sitting with Betty and meeting with Betty, and it's hard to fathom the pain of that thorn, isn't it? That's, that's just a terrible phone call she received from the police. And I was talking to Betty about this and this pain, this experience, and she had this room in her uh, home. It's almost like a garden room, sunroom, had all these plants, and she painted for a while. She had her own paintings up. It was, it was really cool. And I was sitting there with her. She's sitting in her rocker, and she reached over, and she pulled out this huge black binder and overweighted and oversized for a frail older lady, and she flipped open to my family's page. And she had each of our names, each of our birth dates, and notes handwritten in. And the thorn of her affliction that I would never, never, ever have chosen and prayed fervently for God to rescue her from had driven her to such a place of awe and affection for God and in the pits of her own pain who felt so frail and infirm from her arthritis and her constant pain that she was in. And she was a prayer warrior for the salvation of my children because she knows the price of the loss of a lost child. She saw, this is the way we all are with our thorns, no value. I saw no greater value. We need community to help us build connections at times through the thorns and the blessings. And as mundane as that may seem, even secular researchers know that will create in you a greater hope and joy and rest. And all they're doing is seeing what Paul said. My question for you is, will you, there's no life group scheduled, can't do it. Don't have host families set aside, don't have leaders trained. But I'm charging you to do this this week with other people. And I guarantee you, it will bind your hearts, it will deepen your awe and grow your affection for God and for one another. Thorns hurt, but they're good, aren't they? And blessings are kind gifts too. May God fit us for service and keep us usable in it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for blessings. And by faith this morning, we thank you for thorns. And God, we ask that you would continue to deepen our affection and expand our awe and that you would keep us humble, Father, that, that really it's Jesus that people see and know and experience and not us. No one needs more Steve. Lord, no one needs that. But oh, Father, how they need your Son. And so God, would you continue to do this work. Thank you for the promise that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it. Father, would you continue this maturity journey in us, teaching us about the blessings and also thorns in the flesh. And Father, I ask that you would just, even in this moment, through the power of the Spirit, comfort the afflicted and comfort 
the, the ones who are in pain. Lord, I ask that you would remind our hearts that you don't break bruised reeds and you don't snuff out smoldering wicks, but you deal gently with the suffering. You, you suffered like us. You enter into our sufferings. Father, I ask that you would take our pains and that you would comfort the hurting. Lord, but would you continue to use it for your glory's sake? We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.